As the theme song says, this is another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Another Oscar race checkpoint. Wrapping up quarter two for you. Uh, I am in quite the constraint conditions right now. I'm in a recording space that I have never been in before because there are people in my basement. So I'm coming to you live right now from my guest bedroom, staring out the window. And I wonder if anyone can see me talking into a microphone, staring out the window. I'm Mike One, slowly losing it, like Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window. Uh, this is co-host also Mike. And you're without a table in there somehow. I have nothing. I was going, honest to God, before you suggested this TV uh, dinner stand setup, I was sitting on the floor <laughs> holding the microphone. I, I swear to God. A man your size and stature should not be sitting on the floor ever, FYI. That's why you're not a yoga guy. But, like, yeah, you didn't have... You didn't have a table. You didn't have a bed. You didn't. I have, got nothing. We were talking about folding chairs and how yeah. the mic wasn't, you know... You know I tried it. Right. I tried doing a folding chair. I have this small circular table that was made in the Paleolithic era. That's the most unstable thing I've ever seen. Uh, I tried working with that. It didn't work. I was going to just resign myself to being a stand-up comedian and holding the mic. Uh, but we found some kind of compromise here. I don't know. Uh, you know, Maybe I'll bust out of this like the Hulk at some point and just throw everything mid-episode because I'm tired of being constrained. If it sounds like a pots and pans band is happening, <laughs> right. then your mic fell and yeah, something. Exactly. Or I wrong. fell. Either one. Yeah. All right. So what are we talking about today, Mike? Yeah, we got a bunch of news. We have uh, Tenant moving again, moved another two weeks from July 31st to August 12th. That probably means the rest of the July schedule, including Mulan, is about to announce next because coronavirus is back with a vengeance, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, it sure is. It's taking the South by storm. Uh, here's my take on this. I don't think Tenet's coming out August 12th. Right. I don't think Tenet may not be coming out in 2020. And you could say the same for Mulan. I don't understand how we're getting live sports back, and I don't think we're getting live entertainment back, or in-person entertainment, I should say, until there's some kind of vaccine or something's worked out. Because this thing, I mean, just today as we're recording this on the 26th, Florida just reported 9,000 new cases almost in a single day period. Uh, we could be in a Disney movie, and you would be just as negative as you are That's now. That's right. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, but I think you're actually right about this, and I hate to agree with you. I'm usually the, you know, the the optimistic one on this yeah. pod, but yeah, it does not look good, and uh, it's only a matter of time till everything shuts down again. So we better get used to these quarters, you know, going the way they're going, and, and having a few streaming movies and PVOD movies, because yeah, quarter three is 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 scaring me right now as well, but. You know, we're going to get to the point where we review a bunch of movies from quarter two. That is going to be the centerpiece of this episode. But we did want to rip through a couple more stories first. We had the Golden Globes. They officially moved to February. We expected this. The BAFTAs, the Critics' Choice, the Indie Spirits have all moved, Michael. So this is no surprise. Uh, yeah, and the Pete Davidson Golden Globe campaign stays alive because the longer films don't go in theaters, uh, the, the longer he can actually put his name in the best actor race. Yeah. And that's all that really matters to me. But if he can't take the HFPA on a yacht with him, how is that campaign going to work? <laughs> this is my friend Brian May from Queen. I believe you guys are familiar. Mike, I think uh, the big news 
of the week was the Toronto International Film Festival. They announced that they're going to have a streamlined 50 movie format. They're going to do things virtually. They're going to do things in person with social distancing. What do you think of TIFF? Interested. I'm very, very interested and intrigued uh, to see what TIFF's approach actually is and how they pull this off because they've always been to me, and I've talked about this even before the world was literally on fire as it is now, they've always been to me the most modern of the four major film festivals. They're the ones that seem to have always gotten it most, and I think an example of that is that while Jojo Rabbit was so polarizing, they just went ahead and had it win their film festival last year, giving it their best film award, so... If anyone can make the biggest strides in terms of going virtual with their film festival in some way, if not completely, uh, it's going to be Toronto, I think. And we love TIFF because Brian Formo loves TIFF too, right? Guest of the pod. <laughs> right, exactly. If he deems that worthy of uh, you know making his you know one one trip there, then uh, yeah, we're on board. Uh, I think uh, they've selected some movies from Cannes already, and that's cool. You have Ammonite with Kate Winslet, Saoirse Ronan, mm-hmm. Fossils sex we have uh, Halle Berry's directorial <laughs> debut which hopefully has nothing to do with any of that it's called bruised a couple or more, more t- of it or more of it <laughs> especially the fossils please right just but all fossils all the time I'm with you I'm looking forward to seeing what they do here I know they they have a lot of celebrity deputies what did they call them ambassadors I think they call them ambassadors which is which is cooler and more regal sounding but they that, should call them deputies though that'd be badass but they have as many ambassadors as, as they have movies so I don't it, it's definitely a strange situation because they had over 300 films last year but we're yeah. gonna have to keep an eye on those announcements uh, in MMOWs and ORCs to come finally Mike we had a big story for you and I I think because mm-hmm. Netflix is circling the trial of the Chicago 7. This is the Aaron Sorkin film. This has every single male actor in Hollywood cast in this movie because it's not just about seven guys. It's about the entire courtroom drama of, you know, I guess it's happening in Chicago, I would think. (laughs) Or at least it originated there. That's probably a solid guess. Yeah, so here's the question that struck me is that what does this mean? Why is Netflix all of a sudden jumping on this now? Does it mean Mank actually isn't going to be finished in time? Is Netflix just that Oscars hungry that they're just, they figure, you know, a pandemic year, it's now or never for Netflix to actually win Best Picture, so they want to have as many big bites at the Apple as they possibly can in one year? Is it just COVID related and they don't think that this movie is going to ever hit theaters, even if it can? Netflix is so strange because they don't feel like they have to announce anything. And when they do announce something, it's 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 in a small, you know, bite-sized news story. Like Mank right. is coming out in October. They don't really tell us when or how. And mm-hmm. they're not going to any festivals. And, you know, maybe they'll change their mind down the line here. But I think Netflix is pretty hungry. They're pretty damned hungry, as they showed last year. And to me, the trial of the Chicago 7 is a dicey box office proposition just you know going into it it's a historical political courtroom drama about vietnam war protests now maybe in this particular year it would play to mass audiences a little better but usually this type of movie needs critical acclaim it it, it requires it requires awards buzz for it to become a hit you know it might make its money back for it but for it to become a hit a smash hit and be a money maker it's got to have buzz behind it so I look at the fall and, you know, with the pandemic raging right now and putting that slate in doubt, it makes sense for the studio to be like, all right, let's see if Netflix will overpay for this. If they give us a built-in profit, we don't have anything 
you know, assure right. to us about this right. year in, in general. So might as well, like if we could take a $30 million profit on a movie that Netflix, you know, is happy to buy and have something for their September, they already have October, they'll probably have movies beyond that. Might as well, might as well see what they're willing to pay. I almost wonder if this needs to happen more often with more prominent uh, movies. And I know it can't happen with big studio movies because obviously they position those to be played in theaters, but it still boggles my mind how we're three months into this pandemic and no end in sight, and yet no movement has been done with the PVOD side of revenue split between NATO. Like, at what point, and I said this on Twitter, at what point do the studios, the major studios, and NATO, the Theater Owners Alliance, come together to decide to save the industry themselves? Like, they're just sitting around right now. What's going to be the motivating factor? What's going to be the impetus for them to actually say, hey, you know what? Just in case this pandemic goes into 2021, let's figure out something to make sure we can all kind of survive. I hope they have some backup plans in place, but I, basically they've been in the dark like everybody. Right. Uh, I, I, it seems that way, and, it, and it's going to hurt them. Like AMC is planning that reopening with no movies again. Like no it's way. not going to happen. We, we, bo- nope. we both know it's not going to happen. No way. I agree. It's going to have to get pushed back to August now. And, and, and fine, like, I, I understand maybe it's a fluid situation. Maybe they have enough money to dance around before the relaunch. But this could be disastrous right. for AMC right. if mean, they that's... had to open and then close. And that cost them even more. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and AMC has to know that, right? Like, they can't just be full speed ahead for what? Now just Mulan and then hoping everything's okay for three weeks and then hoping Tenet sticks. It's just... It makes no sense to me how there's been no movement on that front when PVOD is staring everybody right in the face, and it's proven to be a success even for a big-budget movie, as Trolls World Tour kind of was. Well, I'm curious to see more PVOD numbers, because I thought the the real litmus test for, for that format was going to be the King of Staten Island, and we still haven't seen any numbers right. on that. I'm curious about the high note, about Irresistible, when uh, that has a chance to play for a little while longer. You know, we need uh, Mr. Bruggeman. We need Mr. Bruggeman over at IndieWire to, you know, to hit the phone somehow Amen. and get us some numbers. But, uh, Mike, centerpiece today is that we're going to review a Baker's Dozen uh, of uh, 20... a Baker's Dozen, Bob. Yeah, 2020 movies here. And this this is always fun when we get the chance to do this. For some reason, it wasn't built into our schedule, but, like, we just had this backlog of MMOW movies, and you matched me movie for movie this time. So I'm really impressed with you. You know, I thought you were bullshitting me when you said you were watching a movie a night, but you must have <laughs> been, man, because, yeah, you got enough movies there, too. I have six Fs and one movie you vehemently disagree with me on, so I'm very excited <laughs> to see where this goes. Well, I guess I'll start. I guess I do have one more than you, but... I, just because I have to say that. Because Rubbing I have that to, in. My I have God. to humble brag? What is wrong with me? Am I my, Go for it. Oh, I was just going to talk shit about my family. Am I my mother's son? My mom does that all the time, and it drives insulting me insane. Insulting me by and, insulting your and mother. Then really then a insulting my there. mother. I am in rare form today. No filter. Quarantined for too long, folks. Miss Juneteenth is my first review. This is on VOD, and this is like a procedural about a single mom working several jobs to support her daughter and the center of the movie is that she is trying to get her daughter to be a contestant at the Miss Juneteenth pageant Mm -hmm. I believe in in New Orleans and 
this is a pageant she won when she was young. So, look, I mean, you can predict kind of the end of the film from there, and that's kind of the biggest problem with the movie, its predictability. But we get some truly excellent performances. Uh, Nicole Bahari plays that mom. Alexis Chikese is the daughter, uh, the contestant Kai. The father is played by Kendrick Sampson, who we just talked about as being on the front lines of the protest two weeks ago. Yeah. You know, he's got a heroic life beyond his, his acting life. And I just really felt for everyone one of these characters they made them all believable relatable and it's just another testament to the the underserved underhired african-american filmmakers out there like channing godfrey peoples i mean she deserves much more work uh and miss juneteenth is uh is something that even if you don't pay the seven dollars on you know when it comes on streaming services check it out and it does have uh, high scores, too, across the board. And I was very, very tempted. I was between that and one other movie. Watching it last night and giving it a review for, for this episode, the only reason I picked the other movie uh, was because it was a, a new one that you hadn't gotten to yet, and I figured I could do the public some good here. But, yeah, I, I co-sign everything you said. I probably will get around to watching this regardless. And it does say something about how underserved this community of actors is because this is a movie filled with a cast that I'm not all that familiar with. So to, to see them put together characters that are memorable and effective that's going to be a running theme throughout my reviews that some movies fell short in doing that so I'm glad to hear that and I'm glad to hear Miss Juneteenth is, is worth the price of admission there yeah strong B grade probably a B86 for me if I rewatched it Good. I might get into that you know coveted B plus range I think you'd recognize Nicole Bahari she's been in some a bunch of different things she's probably been in a couple horror movies too that I'm just not familiar with but yeah yeah I mean everybody would like this movie it's, it's a fun movie about a beauty pageant but it's really not about a beauty pageant kind of deal and uh, yeah it's it, you really feel for the mother-daughter relationship all right so that's miss june teeth i had the the baby teeth review here which a lot of people online have loved uh i got to it a little after the hype and it's a watch that i was all over uh when living through hmm. some of it is just incredibly outlandish to be believable to me but i've also thankfully never been in the position of having to watch a teen daughter fight for her life as is the case here baby teeth is one that we've previewed here uh, a, a young girl fighting for her life befriends this 23 year old kind of rapscallion to use a, a term out of the 50s <laughs> Ben Mendelsohn he should never leave this space this is the role in which he can carry whole scenes in and he comes off as most authentic to me I've had problems in the past watching Ben Mendelsohn try to be the lead character and carry scenes I don't know that he's up to the task because they. I feel like he was kind of miscast this is where he's perfect. I totally believe him. I thought he was very authentic, and he plays a father who's in over his head and too smart for his own good. Shannon Murphy deserves a ton of credit for how this comes off looking. She's the director, and I really appreciated the breakdown into many chapters for a film like this. Look, elephant in the room, and you can't avoid it. It was really tough for me to watch this movie and be pulling for this relationship between a high school girl and the 23-year-old man on the heels of all the gross shit going on in Hollywood yeah. at the moment that we cover. Uh, I tried getting past it and viewing the art for what it was, but I would be lying to you if I said that didn't end up weighing on me for much of my time with the movie. That all said, I understand why people hold it in such high regard. I personally gave it an 82B- on first watch. I could probably be talked in to going higher on it. Uh, and I can see this one making its way into the international feature category. Assuming people are able to overlook that and keep that separate from the grossness that's continuing to go on in Hollywood right now. Yeah, these three actors are at the peak of their powers, I thought. Uh, you know, Eliza Scanlon's rising star, Essie mm -hmm. Davis, Ben Mendelsohn. They're really superb. Uh, yeah, but this is this is a rough watch, uh, and it's 
you know, it's like Lady Bird had goods that, that it could deliver that where, you know, you have a rough relationship at the center of it, but at least, you know, you got a lot of comedy involved. This movie didn't right. have any of that. Uh, Toby Wallace was pretty good as the heroin addict boyfriend uh, fighting that addiction. And yeah, it's it's a, a strange movie in, in terms of how it pulls on your heartstrings. And then you're just yeah. like, wait, what? Wait, what's really happening here? This is all kinds of illegal. And you're just like, oh, my God. I, yeah, I, I gave it a middle middling B grade as well. I, I thought the performances are, are the hot selling point. It does bring up some interesting questions too, like where what what does a parent do in this situation? What vices are you willing to feed into for the betterment of your child? How do you make these decisions? Is there ever a right answer? I mean, it does bring up some good moral quandaries. Again, I mean, I literally watched this the day after we had just talked about Chris D'Elia and all that, so it was just fresh on my mind. It's hard to escape from, and it's it is what it is, and I I know that impacted my watch. So if you're able to keep that separate, I agree. There's a lot of good to be had here, and clearly, film Twitter. They've been all over this movie and singing its praises since it came out. Well, we'll mention it again in a few minutes when we hit superlatives, but uh, I want to move on to Spelling the Dream. This is a documentary on Netflix about spelling bees, Michael, and about how Indian kids are dominating the national national spelling bee circuit. So this movie, like the first half of it, is about how these kids train. It's about the immigration system in, in a way and in a positive way. So it's, I'm going to have another documentary later on. I'm like, I can't believe this is a positive movie, but it Good. somehow is because we always see parades of sadness about these these issues. But this is actually a, a positive look at immigration and how it's been done really well in this country, inarguably. And wow. <laughs> I think the last hour is about the spelling bees and it's riveting stuff. Like I am the play-by-play, the, the word-for-word. I mean, I'm in. I'm wrapped up. It's got a lot of suspense to it. And uh, this is another one, just like a B86, really strong watch on Netflix, another documentary. I mean, they've been coming out with a bunch of them that are just really strong, really high quality. We could certainly use all the heartwarming and good news and positively shining a light on uh, anything having to do even tangentially with a government entity in this day and age, uh, certainly currently. And so if this is putting a positive spin on the way immigration is being handled, that's great to hear. And it's nice to know that those good stories do still exist. I am a sucker for the spelling bee. Absolutely. It boggles my mind how these children are this young and they devote pretty much their young lives to studying these words that just uh, they'll never use and nobody ever uses. And the, these these unbelievable, like these silent cues and stuff that they are able to nail. I would be dro- drooling on myself up there. I'd be a fool. I wonder, have you ever watched a national spelling bee though? Like oh, yeah. actually watch it in real time. Do they mm-hmm. give you the spelling of the word immediately as an audience member? Or yes. do they give you, a, oh, cause I, I would want to try to like spell it myself and then laugh at myself at the end of it every time, like really well, quick, just like there is just a immediate. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bit of a delay, but when the, the kid is spelling it out, they do put it up on screen. So, but the, oh, yeah, good. there's enough time for you to guess and, and be, feel bad about yourself as an adult, as I have many times. Yeah. Well, that would be fun though. <laughs> fun to laugh at yourself. And then this like four year old spells supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and you feel like a dope. If I remember right, the most recent one, I don't know if this is what this uh, documentary was about, but the most recent spelling bee ended in like a three-way tie or something. 
because well, they just ran out of tough words and the kids kept nailing them. I think you're right. And and before that, it was like a six-way tie or a seven-way tie. Yeah. It was ridiculous. And the, the, the spelling bee that they actually cover in the movie, there is a single winner. Uh, so that comes like before. And I guess the most recent one is the one you're describing. Three three of them won it. But yeah, oh my God, I can't. I, I, I believe it because these kids are just machines. I, sh- I shouldn't say that, but they're just so smart and they've studied so hard. And yeah. it's just incredible. And you, and you believe it after watching the first hour. I, I, I'm glad. To see, I don't know that my heart could take the stress knowing how I dealt with my childhood and study ever having to study and like was always <laughs> against it. So I'm glad to hear that these kids are put up to it. And uh, like I said, certainly smarter than me. It's harder than hitting a curveball, Mike. Let's just say that much. <laughs> but yeah, that's spelling the dream, by the way. Spelling the dream on Netflix. I had 7,500, which is available now on Amazon. Uh, for me, I know we disagree on this, but this is a top seven 2020 film of the year for me thus far. Joseph Gordon-Levitt makes this movie. It's basically Tom Hardy's drive, but at 30,000 feet. And I think studying this movie and then surely in back-to-back watches can reveal a ton about different ways in which a single performance can raise up a film. One's done through very measured restraint and disdained boiling just below the surface that's rarely unleashed, that's surely the other, and this is what Joseph Gordon-Levitt brings to the table, is just this horror and pain and mental and emotional anguish that's worn right on a man's face as he fights literally for his life and the lives of others. If you don't know, 7500 is about the hijacking of a plane as it's in mid-flight. Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing the pilot there. I really was impressed by his performance, and his performance is the movie. Uh, 86 hard B for me. So this movie is basically like Tom Hardy's, what, did you, what was it called? Drive? Drive, yeah. So it's like uh, Buried from, uh, you know, Ryan Reynolds. It's just yes. a movie focused on one character for an hour and a half. And yeah, I guess you loved it. And I guess you would have, you know, pronounced his name Love It if you didn't love it. <laughs> because That's terrible. I don't, I don't know why. I, I don't know it. where that was going. <laughs> But Levette just sounds fancier. Like Joseph Gordon Levette, I'd never heard anybody pronounce it that way. Do you it's know that? To be that's Levitt? I thought it was Levitt. I've always called Joe. He's he's the guy that uh, you know got killed in H two O. That's my guy, Joey G Levette. <laughs> JGL, let's call him. This is another movie like Uncut Gems for me, where I I recognize that it's good. I just hated every minute of my watching experience. <laughs> So I gave it like a begrudging C plus. I think you're able to handle movies that just bring you through all the horror and the pain and the mental anguish. I was raised in yelling. Yeah, and I can't handle them. I don't know why. I was forged by anger and outrage. It's a new problem. <laughs> You've done that Bane impression before to Thank this you. very point. I know. I know. I like to think of it as a bit. <laughs> Mike, I watched Premature, which starts out as a as a movie. That's, you know, a little tougher to watch. It's in the city. Everybody's yelling at each other. But it becomes this beautiful coming-of-age story. And Premature is now on Hulu for people. But, like, I think this is one of the best movies of the year. It got a B-plus for me, 87. I I was shocked. It was, like, my surprise of the month of May. I think it came out late May on Hulu there. These micro-budget indie film award winners, because this won the Cassavetes Award at the Indie Spirits last year, they aren't always the best, let's just say. Like, I've been sucked into watching a bunch of them. Like, Bernie Kane's an example of that. And, yes, you see the talent on display, but usually these movies are so goddamn sad. Usually these movies are, I don't want to say overrated, but they, they 
they suffer in the story aspect. Premature is just a flat-out great story. It's a mature story, and I, th- I thought the actors were great in it, and you telling me that this was made for a half a million dollars from Rashad Ernesto Green? Give this guy more work. He's going to come in under budget, folks. My goodness. <laughs> he deserves it. He deserves maybe, you know... A hundred times this, I mean, the, with what he's put, able to put on screen. What is the movie about other than just a coming-of-age story? What's the, what's the premise? It's about a summer romance between uh, this girl who's about to go to college and uh, this guy. And it's just a really mature way of, you know, portraying this kind of situation. And it's, it's just really sweet. And, it, again, it's just honest. To the point where you believe it, and I, I could say that about Miss Juneteenth. I could say that about Baby Teeth, to where in most of Baby Teeth, but it's, there's just an authenticity there that you believe the day-to-day interactions. A lot of these indie films can do this, and really only these indie films can do this right. because you know you got so much of the everyman in every blockbuster. You know, so th- this is a chance to really get specific. And uh, I, you know, there, she's living in New York City, and I, I, it was nice to revisit the city, and you know, not with Adam Sandler. So I was really happy to watch <laughs> Premature. It's nice to see too. Uh, both of us focusing on authenticity in a couple of our reviews. You could see the uh, the virtues that kind of ring with us when we're reviewing these and playing the role of a movie critic as we are. Uh, Something that didn't ring true for Mm. me. (laughs) Look, I'm going to desecrate a a sacred beast right now for a lot of people. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't love it either. I think we were the only two people who didn't, but The Vast of Night, I... I, I don't get it. <laughs> I'm not Mr. Sci-Fi, so I'm willing to admit that this could all be a me problem and it's just a genre thing and I missed it because I've always had a tough time buying into Aliens if, like, Will Smith or Stanley Kubrick aren't involved anyway, but I put this one on for the first time just as background noise mm-hmm. and I got lost. So I stopped it in the middle and I was like, okay, it just must be one of those that's too complex to have as background fodder. I'll have to give it my full attention. So I watched it again, and I gave it my full attention, mm-hmm. and I fell asleep. <laughs> I, I, I can't. I, I, I don't. I can't. I found no reason to care about anything happening to any of the characters or any of the relationships. I wish the aliens the best in their quest to take over this small town. I have. I, I, I don't even have a grade. I, couldn't, I didn't finish it. I, fell, I, I can't. If I can't get through it twice, that's it. That's not exactly what's happening, but I guess you didn't finish it. <laughs> no, I didn't finish it. This could be, it could not be an alien movie at all. I'm just guessing based on the prom- the first hours. So. Yeah, this is a another Indie Spirit Awards nominee here. This was for Best uh, uh, Screenplay. And yeah, this is, the, this is the other side of the coin with the indie movies, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really displays a lot of great craft. I mean, there is a four-minute take that is worth the price of admission, but you didn't get to it. And it's really in the zeitgeist of film Twitter right now. Filmmakers are loving it when they're going on podcasts. And I, I just don't get it. Like I, I Do I have to give this one a third chance, Mike? Is that what you're telling me? Well, I wonder if there's a way for you to watch that four-minute take somehow to fast-forward it. Because that is really cool, the way they film that. And I, I give them a lot of props. Uh, it's walking through a lot of... Uh, you know, suburban streets really quickly with the stop motion camera. I forget how they do it, but it's it's really smart. And it, when you have such an indie indie film that you're trying to promote, etc., it's nice to have that signature shot in there and to mm-hmm. really you know announce you know your arrival in the filmmaking world. So I think they did that with this movie. But the vast of night, 
it's trying to be Tarantino-esque, I guess, with this, you know, talk about nothing. It, mm. it just lacks characterization, in my opinion. So to give this a Best Screenplay nominee makes no sense to me. Like, nothing that those kids say to one another as they're going from basketball game to... I couldn't give a shit less about the kids. Radio I station. I could not care less about what, anything that was happening. They didn't it give me a reason to invest. doesn't matter to the end of the plot. At least, I, again, you know, you had a hard time paying attention. I also had a hard time paying attention. So this movie lost me early, and I kind of perked up. As, as it went along. And, and this is the problem with these watch-at-home movies. So maybe we're both missing the uh, the point with this movie and we didn't pay close enough attention. I, I really couldn't. Uh, I couldn't invest myself either. So it's another begrudging C-plus for me. I just, you know, good VFX, you know, really good cinematography, but there's no Royale with cheese lines. There's no lines <laughs> about, you know, Fox Force 5 TV pilots. If you're going to give me all that exposition early... Then you just you you really have to punch it up. It's really yeah. got to be funny, or it's got to tell me something about these kids. If you're gonna go for Tarantino, you better deliver Tarantino, is what you're kind of saying, which I, I agree with. I mean, it's you, you got to find a reason to invest. I don't think they're trying to go for Tarantino, but Tarantino was very sly in the fact that he's charging exposition into this, you know, supposed to talk about nothing, which is for maximum entertainment value. Like it is so World entertaining. Building. Yeah, and then you have dramatic irony, like you have you realize they're hitmen and they're talking about all this nonsense before. So when you watch it again, now it adds a whole nother layer to right. it. Like here, like these kids are talking about being on the radio and other than, you know, having my own podcast, it's kinda cool. But that's like annoy it's almost annoying, you know, to <laughs> like I, I don't think I could go back and rewatch this. All right, well, I'm gonna get back into the positive for a second because I watched Time to Hunt on Netflix. So this is a South Korean action film. Mike, this is half heist movie and this is half Terminator 2. It's hmm. really without the sci-fi. They're just getting hunted by an assassin. Right. So this is a really cool action movie premise. Now the assassin is kind of dumb. He's a little overconfident, let's just say, but that kind of makes it more fun. But then again, this is kind of a just a fun movie to watch if you're an action movie guy. And I thought I was an action movie guy heading into this year, right? Just, <laughs> and then I watched Extraction, and then I realized I'm probably not an action movie guy anymore. But now this movie, Time to Hunt, tells me I'm still an action movie guy. So if you add some of the cast members of Parasite, if you have some crazy shootouts, I mean, solid B85 all day. I really enjoyed Time to Hunt. I don't think it's it's asking too much to have more than a Hemsworth to get you invested in an action movie either. So I think you're on good footing there. And they didn't time overdo to... the kills, though. You know, that was another thing. Like, this is very methodical. In time to hunt? In time to hunt. It's just, you know, there's there's not a million kills. Like, Extraction, it's just nothing but kills. It's You can you probably have more time killing people in that movie than you have time not killing people in that movie. That's the one that had kind of the loss, the lawsuit go down overseas, right? About whether or not it was actually going to make its way to Netflix. Time to Hunt was, yeah, not yeah. Extraction. Yeah, right, Time right. to Hunt had a distribution issue, but yeah, it made to, made it to Netflix like a week later. I was catching up on it in quarter two. I think it was still a quarter two film. Might have been a quarter one catch up, but uh, you know, we can stick those in here too. We got a lot of stuff to review. Well, this one is also maybe a quarter one catch-up, and I watched it in quarter two, but it was not time to hunt, but the hunt, uh, the much-delayed, much-maligned, the whole we're hunting humans thing that was pushed back twice and finally made its way to PVOD. Uh, no. Not no. good, huh? No. <laughs> the most frustrating thing in the world to me is when a decent movie is sitting right there, 
and it like what you're watching could be a really memorable piece of cinema, but it's they go in the dumbed down direction because it just it's too risky to go to where it would need to go to make it a good movie. I think this movie could have been really good. There is some memorable stuff about it. it. Does have some pretty good comedic kills that land. It's got enough gore to satisfy the horror crowd. It's got a protagonist you give a shit about. It's got you know okay twists along the way. They're not great, but they do enough where you can get by them. But then the motivation is revealed at the end, and it's just such a pander to a certain audience, and I hated it. So, I, I really, it really left a bad taste in my mouth. So this is like of the horror comedy variety. It's trying to be funny. Yeah, there's definitely moments. I mean, Ike Barinholtz is one of the main characters. You know, there's there's definitely a, a comedic undertone to this, and they do try to go for some laughs throughout some. I mean, there's one killer in particular that I I guffawed out loud to. Uh, it's probably not a good thing that a kill in the hunt reminded me so vividly of a kill in the five bloods oh, that no. was also done for comedy. But uh, if you listen to our five, the five bloods review, you'll know which one I'm talking about. Uh, Cause I laughed out loud at the same idea of that kill. Yeah. You're but, a bad person, but uh... yeah, that's true. No, that's true. That's that. Yeah. That can't be overstated. I am <laughs> 75 C for me in the hunt. Yeah. Your sense of humor about kills is <laughs> worrisome. Let's just say, thank and God I found y- this microphone. Well, you would have had a field day with Becky. Mike, because there are some kills. Oh my goodness! Uh, the problem with Becky is like it. Everybody's talking about it like it's some Home Alone kind of uh, comedy kind of send up. It's Home Alone with a thirteen-year-old girl. It's a horror Home Alone movie, and like I don't get that at all. And I don't care about that comparison necessarily. That's like that's not disqualifying Becky for me. Mm-hmm. But like Home Alone was a comedy, and this movie is taking itself so seriously. That I, I just wish, I wish they had Joel McHale and Kevin James and, you know, the comedic element in this film because that might have made it work better. Because if this is dead serious and Kevin James is just whispering or mumbling all of his lines, like, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand why he's getting so much praise for this movie. Like, people are that desperate for anything right now on VOD that they're just willing to see something different. I hated this movie pretty much from start (laughs) to finish. I usually don't come out and say that, but like I've worked with seventh, eighth graders in the past. I've been Mm -hmm. a volunteer and I I just worked with kids before. There's no 13 year old that is going to be able to fight off a bunch of neo-Nazis recently escaped from prison who in a long monologue tell you how they've been thinking up their plan for years having been stuck in prison (laughs) and they've been planning for this moment for years and one 13 year old girl is going to screw that up with the fact that she has an arts and crafts set yeah she's gonna throw paint cans at them (laughs) like look fine maybe once she'll get lucky but there's no way she's able to... It's bullshit. But those Nazis are going to overcome that girl, is what you're saying. I'm saying Nazis probably are going to overcome the, the kid. But there's also a thing with a dog early on that just disqualified the movie for me, like in the first scene. Like, you would hate it. You would absolutely hate it. Was Kevin James at least passable as a bad guy? No, he was awful. Uh, he was awful. I hated every second of it. I'm yelling at the TV. Uh, would, would it have been more intriguing if him and Joel McHale switched characters? Yes. And any, I think Joe has got a little darkness to him. Absolutely. I would have been rooting more for Kevin James and Joe McHale. I'm like, I don't know if I'm in his corner or not yet. Just in general. Like, I don't know if I want him to play good guys or bad guys. I might want him to play bad guys. 
Yeah, I can. I, I I don't think I've ever seen him play a bad guy, but I would like to experience that. And he certainly has the uh, the arrogance about him that he, at least from his uh, role on Community. Sure. But that's that that sucks. I was kind of looking forward to that movie. I was hoping it'd be something, and I'm sure Kevin James was as well. As far as letdowns, I thought The Invisible Man was kind of a letdown for me as well. I saw uh, this, Mike. Yeah, you, so you you didn't think it lived up to the hype? No, I, and I, that's, it, that's the biggest problem is that I good. went in after the hype. And so I was expecting more. So I'm a victim of my own expectations, even though I try to go in with no expectations. It's tough to do sometimes. But especially in the horror genre, I get very excited when I hear such good things. Uh, the act two scene of The Invisible Man mm-hmm. involving a public restaurant it is so implausibly ridiculous for neither character to take note of what is happening immediately before the action that takes place, especially the protagonist after what she's been through at that point and what she knows is happening. But also, someone in that place would have seen the whole thing from beginning to end too and been a viable witness to tell the cops exactly what went down. Mm. And then, later on, you're... Using surveillance cameras as a tool with which you rely on for other aspects, but you just conveniently leave out the part that the restaurant probably had surveillance cameras to check as well. And if you check a surveillance camera, the whole thing unravels. True, but it's almost built on the fact that she is analyzing the situation, though. Because it's not its not like, the all right, maybe the cops can figure it out, but can she? Right. She, but but she, it's that scene is building into the like the whirlwind of the next few days, and she would spend a night in jail. The cops would check the tapes, and then they would be all over the Invisible Man. <laughs> That's what would happen in real life. They'd be like, "Oh my God, where'd that thing come from? How is it just floating there?" Well, Bill, this is a first for my uh, career as a detective, but that knife just got up on its own. Right, right, exactly. And it's not like it just went in one motion. Like, it was floating there for a good couple seconds. We've been going non-spoilers so often that... I, I tried to keep it spoiler-free, but that was just dumb. All right, there's, there's a, it's in the middle of the movie, but there's, yeah, there's a, there's a moment with a knife. And the, the yeah. Invisible Man is involved. Everybody knows the Invisible Man is going to be involved right. in this movie. So, right. all right, fine. I think... I think that this movie coming out for me in when it when was it February right yeah I think so I saw it like two weeks or three weeks before the quarantine in theaters and I was like all right cool we got a halfway decent movie in February and I love the whole third act for sure and it's a good story I I mean it's a really innovative yeah it's a really innovative story the performance look it was overhyped I mean I was expecting like Tony Collette and hereditary type levels, and it just isn't that. And if, if I Tony tried Collette, to underhype it for you, though, you did. You a did a couple episodes ago. You did. So I, you know, I, and I, we're going to talk more about Elizabeth Moss later on. So I, I think the performance was good. It's not to say she wasn't good in it. I think she is, but it's not Oscars level. I don't think. But even in, in even a year like twenty twenty, I, I mean, it's not even the best Elizabeth Moss performance on the year so far. And right. certainly not the best one in a horror movie. Even I mean, you could make the argument that her performance in Us was was more gripping than what she did here. So uh, whatever, regardless, I think the story was really, really good, uh, really innovative. I'm still like a B minus on it. And by the way, that chase throughout the parking lot that happens, that would have been the most rain the city of L.A. has gotten in like three decades. And it got it all in one storm. So 
they cranked Call up the sprinklers. They, they <laughs> cranked up the sprinklers. All right. Well, I, I think uh, there's no way to transition now to this next movie because that's, it's actually a serious movie. It's another documentary. I was going to watch this last night, too, but I saw you beat me to it already. Yeah, there's not. I, I was thinking of a transition, and I'm usually good at coming up with terribly, awesomely bad transitions. There's nothing here for Athlete A. This is uh, from, obviously, 2020 on Netflix, premiered last night. Strong B86. This is about USA Gymnastics and the scandals there, the abuse scandals. My God, Mike, I, I just can't get over how, how people are just so awful. Awful. For so just, long. Just monsters. Absolute and, fucking monsters. And then they protect, like all of the leadership over there is protecting mm-hmm. these people. And it's not just Larry Nassar. It's not just the one guy who got caught and sentenced to like forever in prison, which was good. But there's all these other, you know, pedophiles running around with these kids. So, look, I mean, this is a story. It's about youth sports. It's about how the Olympic sports get corrupted by big business. It's about all that kind of exploitation. And I think this one plays a little smoother somehow than At the Heart of Gold, which was the HBO doc released last year about the same subject. So, I mean, trigger warnings are in effect for both of those. But, uh yeah, you know, it's a rough watch, but it's a it's a worthwhile watch. Where I I felt coming out of it, I felt really good for some of the people that survived, and it's it's a triumph. There's a bunch of triumphant moments for them at the end of this. You see how they grow. It's a heroic story in that regard. You know, from Simone Biles to uh, Ali Raisman, all of these big name Olympians uh, are involved, and it's it's really t- to see their courage on display. It's 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 inspiring stuff. Incredibly, incredibly strong young women, and they. I I just remember I watched uh, the victim statements during that during Larry Nasser's trial, and just the poise and the bravery that these athletes who are just basically kids or just formerly kids months yeah. prior. Uh, having to speak about these awful issues and these horrific incidents. Oh my God, I can't even imagine. Uh, they're heroes. They truly are. I mean, they're 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 role models for young women everywhere. Uh, and I think one of the more disgusting parts about something like this is that in any of these movements, the Me Too movement, it, 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 one of the most disturbing parts is that it takes a movement for these things to to get the wheels in motion to actually seek justice. Like mm-hmm. it, it, we we don't just have one person coming forward and getting the ball rolling, and then that equals Larry Nasser going to jail. No, it takes an entire, basically the entire Olympic gymnastics team, women gymnastics team, to band together and do this and go after him all in one stroke, which is disturbing that it gets to that point, and that's what it takes for these people to be uh, brought to justice. So, yeah, I, I, I my heart goes out to all of them. I am in awe of their strength and their bravery and their poise, and just God bless them. A hell of a movie about journalism, too. Like, I thought the Indi- Indianapolis Star, they're featured in this movie, how they covered the story, and it's uh, it's really cool. So you got that element to it as well. Mike, uh, unfortunately, there is a transition somehow to your movie, <laughs> The Other Lamb. Yeah. So something uh, really real and disturbing. Uh, this is something very not real, and it's The Other Lamb. And it basically, the premise of this movie was... Hey, remember that sex scene from Midsommar? Oh, no. What What if we stretched that out over 90 minutes? There's oh, a movie in there, right? no. <laughs> There's issues along the way, as you can imagine. The symbolism in this movie was less a bop on the nose and more of a slap right across the face. 
And I'm sure that works for some people, but it, for me, if you're dealing in the occult and the mysterious, I don't want my hand held. I want like I want to wrap the WTF around me like a Puritan gown, like these women are dressed in. But there's mm-hmm. highlights. The atmosphere is spooky. The performances are believable. There's some vivid imagery that Argento himself, I think, would be proud of, and William Friedkin, for that matter. Uh, and the climax is pretty damn satisfying. But again, elephant in the room. Talk about racial equality. Look, if you're going to have a cult of Puritan-type women, which is what this is. It's a, it's a, a leader, a cult leader who looks like Jesus and is supposed to be basically this stand-in for Jesus, has this harem of women. One half of the women he calls his wives, the other half he calls his daughters, and basically that once the daughters get too old and have their periods, they become wives. Ugh. Gross. It is. It's a, it's a gross movie in concept, but regardless. Okay, if you're going to have this harem, this cult of Puritan-type women who are all dressed head-to-toe in Puritan gowns, if you want them to be all white... That's a problem in and of itself. I mean, I I, I understand the reasoning, but there's still issues with it, but whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you do strive for representation, though, maybe don't have only one of the women be a black woman. And maybe don't have that lone black woman's only relevant screen time be when she's singing the harmony during one of the sister songs in a depressing scene. I was outraged by that and I can't believe that actually happened in 2020 and why someone would think that's an okay thing for this one actress to go through oh my god I don't even know what to say like this I started to freeze up and get weird when you mentioned sex scenes in general and then you said (laughs) it's like midsummer for two hours and then you said kids and then you said bad religious a lot of issues a lot of issues yeah a lot of issues and you said it's racist yeah 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 that's uh, we're we're talking maybe in the C range for this one. If there's, I mean, like there is, there's highlights to it. But again, doing what we do for for as many times as we do it, these issues are inescapable, as they should be. By the way, I mean, our focus should be on equality. We said that we got more work to do on that, and so, yeah. uh, it, it sticks out to me poorly. So hopefully, we can end on a more uplifting note. Mike, you got one more? I do have one more, and I don't have a transition, so I'm just gonna. <laughs> Go out with it here. I watched And We Go Green. This is on Hulu right now. This is Leonardo DiCaprio's Formula E racing documentary. And it is kind of an oblique way to talk about climate change because this is about, you know, Formula E means electric cars. This is about an electric car racing circuit that's happening in Europe right now. And I just think like this is one of the rare climate change documentaries that's actually optimistic and positive, especially coming from Leo, who's made Good. a couple himself. Yeah, yeah. have not been like the Okavango. I'm just like for, for days. I'm just like heartbroken <laughs> over the Okavango. Good God, I'm so sad. And that's I think that's on Hulu now or National Nat Geo. It's probably on Disney Plus. And he wants you to be sad. I mean, that's the point of those of the of what he speaks on all the time. And we all watch him, yeah. and we all are you know trying to fix the planet one one thing at a time here because no government agency is helping us on a larger scale. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, this is a good thing. And you're really pumped up about this Formula E. And they're making strides in terms of getting cars to the level of racing. So that's going to actually improve electric cars across the board for for everyday use. Yeah, sure. So that that's the big uh, takeaway from this. And that's uh, the most positive thing. So it's not the best sports documentary. Like it tries. I'm, I'm watching that uh, Netflix show on Formula One 
which is mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> I, mean, really? I can't believe it. Like I had no interest in Formula One racing, but I've been watching like one every couple of days. I'm like halfway through season one. I'll probably review it on MOW at some point. But that's a great series, and I'm. Uh, this is not that. This is more about like the whole enterprise. But yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio doing some good work out there. All right, well, good to hear. And nice to end on an uplifting note for that review section. So there you go. That's thirteen quarter two movies uh, that you can parse through and see what kind of fits your watching style and anything you want. We can transition now to talking about the quarter two superlatives, and let's put an Oscars lens to what we've watched in the second quarter of twenty twenty, Michael. Yeah, none of the movies we just mentioned. <laughs> Not at all. No. <laughs> no, I think I think this was a kind of a top heavy quarter in many ways. Like we had. Two and or maybe we have three movies that we reviewed and that we're very proud to have reviewed. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to front here, we reviewed The King of Staten Island, we reviewed The Five Bloods and Shirley. I'm really glad that our quarantine collection, you know, happened and it's 10 episodes long and we were able to review something like Becoming, you know, the Michelle Obama doc, Capone, which was an awesomely bad, awesomely. I mean, emphasis on the bad, but awesomely bad. <laughs> yes, emphasis on both. I just, just yeah. left it alone. We had a lot of movies like that in quarter two uh, that were fun to watch and that we've been reviewing on MMOWs and, and Oscar race checkpoints all along. So th- this wasn't the entirety of our quarter two review. But I do think it's a top heavy one. So let's I think we're both joining hands yeah. to talk about three superlatives, maybe four here. Number one, we both believe in Delroy Lindo as a legitimate best actor contender from The Five Bloods. I don't even know that I can tell you who my number two is right now. Uh, he's that far ahead of, the, of anything I've seen and that far ahead of the pack. But I he, can tell you who your number two is. Yeah, right it now. probably is. Ryan's with Schmavitz. <laughs> it might be, as a matter of fact. But yeah, Delroy Lindo, uh, no question. Is, is the leader in the clubhouse for me right now in my actor rankings. I think we can talk about category fraud. Was he a supporting? Was he a lead? I think I'd almost rather see him go for supporting just because, especially in a watered-down year like 2020 might actually be, it could be even that much easier to get him recognized. Uh, but, uh, and, and I mean, there's going to be accusations of category fraud, I think, we're, regardless of where he ends up. But I would not be surprised to see him there at the end of uh, come Oscars time, whenever, in fact, that is. It's a performance that everybody who's voting on these things is going to have to come back to and compare it to what comes out eventually at the end of this year, right? I mean, this is not something you forget, that kind of, you know, staring at the camera. That shot alone. I mean, yeah. he's going to get recognition for that shot alone. Absolutely agree. God bless Spike Lee for, for showcasing someone who deserves it as much as Delroy at this point. I mean, God bless him. And that's perhaps one of the most impactful showcases I've seen a director give, you know, a, an actor who's worked for him in a bunch of movies. And, you know, Spike Lee being on the Oscar level now, fi- having finally won for Black Klansman on the screenplay, uh, in the screenplay category there, he almost has the coattails as an incumbent that's going to give this movie even more recognition never mind the times we're living in so i do think the five bloods is gonna gonna have some legs i wonder if he felt slighted by john david washington not procuring that fifth nomination for black Klansman. that he said okay fuck it i'll literally give my actor uh, his own soliloquy his own fourth wall break in this movie for five or six extended minutes and let him talk to the audience and let's see you try to deny this now so uh, whatever the reason however he gets through delroy lindo is quite memorable agree with everything you just said 
So if Hugh Jackman was able to go for an Oscar, I would say he's the second best performance of the year from Bad Education. But yeah, I mean, my number three is Pete Davidson as well from The King of Staten Island. How could it not be based on what we've done so far? You know, I mean, based on what we've seen, we've seen everything. What are you going to do? Give it to Hardy for Capone? No, no, no. (laughs) I don't think so either. The voice alone. I'm sorry. Just discredits that movie. (laughs) Mike, Elizabeth Moss is our next uh, superlative for the best actor category coming out of surely we're saying for sure now right we're not saying the invisible man and we don't think it should be the invisible man that's an mmo stamp of approval correct on that take yeah and don't get i mean if she does get nominated for the invisible man i'm, I'm happy because i like horror you know mm-hmm. and we've we've certainly seen more horror more worthy horror uh, not get nominated and but we also know how the academy treats horror and i don't think even if she is living up to tony collette's standard she'd get nominated anyway so but yes to me to underscore your point i think this performance in shirley is far beyond what she does in the invisible man because the invisible man you get to a point in that movie where she's she plays chaotic and and obviously anxious and scared and pet, but she, she plays like that towing the line out of her mind. That's the note she has to go through for the remainder of that movie. And she does it very well. It's a good performance, but surely there's so much more going on just under the skin with that character. And it's always this pulled back and this restrained rage and anger and disdain for various people around her. And she's wearing it all over her face at different times. I think it's a, a multifaceted performance. It almost, we always talk about the actor's acting performance. I think that in Shirley is certainly more the actor's acting performance than anything else she's done or frankly anyone else has done thus far in the uh, actress category I agree and I, I just hope enough people see it I just hope they see it I hope it get, gets more eyes on it to the point where Shirley could actually be in the conversation come Oscar time and that we, we do remember it from these six to eight months of quarantining yeah. <laughs> uh, my next superlative is the painter and the thief this is a documentary on Hulu right now, it is about a painter and a thief. Go on. The thief <laughs> steals a painting. Uh-huh. I can't believe you guessed that. And I'm with you thus the far. painting of the painter, and then they become friends. So it's about a friendship between the painter and the thief. You reviewed this on MMOW, correct? I'm reviewing it in a very silly way right now. Uh, and yes, I did review it on an MMOW. And it's not a silly movie it is a dead serious movie because it's about addiction it's about depression it's about all these heavy topics that somehow done in a really smart way and 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 it's a saga because it spans like over a decade of time so i was surprised to be as engrossed with this movie as i was it got off to a rocky start where these subjects of the documentary kind of weren't comfortable in front of the camera and then they you know i guess if you're in front of a camera all the time you know you get more comfortable so i think I think they were really able to do a nice job with this one, and you know, I, I think it's one of a one of those rare documentaries that is both an issue documentary. Yes, it's a parade of sadness, but it's also a rewarding documentary somehow. And I think Neon's going to push this. I think Ann Thompson's very right about that. How does it stack up? I know you were absolutely in love with Crip Camp. It's one of your favorite movies of the year thus far. How does it stack up to Crip Camp? I think in terms of quality, I think it is on the same tier. I Good. think in terms of like my favoritism, um, I still have Crip Camp as a couple points ahead of it. Okay. 
But then again, I think there's been a lot of good documentaries. Like if you tell me spelling the dream or athlete A is in the conversation with those other few movies, like Netflix is just putting a bunch of good documentaries out there. You know, Hulu has got the opportunity to put out some more coming up. So I'm really impressed with the streaming documentaries thus far this year. So that, that's a been a bright spot. Like we haven't gotten as many good indie films as I had hoped we'd get, right. but we've gotten a lot of good documentaries. All right, so Painter and the Thief, uh, I would also say for international feature, like I said earlier, I think Baby Teeth, I would not be surprised to see that be there as well. What do you think about... Time to Hunt is more of a commercial thing, I would say. It's more of a popular film. I would be shocked All right. if it was in the international film category. South Korea is going to have something better. I mean, last year they had the Best Picture winner, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they sure did, didn't they? <laughs> They're going to pick and something we're else. We're all so happy for. No, I'm kidding. Plus, this one had like, you know, a major dispute over the distribution rights. Right. There's no. It's not going to work. They're not going to pick it. I would be I, shocked. I, I would think you'd, you'd be probably correct in saying that. So let's talk about favorite films from Q2. What do you have? I have the half of it from Netflix, and I reviewed this on the Nomcast with Andrew, our buddy there. I think it was in the middle of May. But it was kind of a you know fun guest spot to do. This is the Cyrano de Bergerac story told in a coming of age rom com kind of setup. You know, it's a it's a movie about you know this uh, a bunch of high school kids, and it's it's really smart and it's really you know it's really moving. I, I loved the acting in it, and it's it's char- it charms the pants off you. Plus, there are sausage dumplings sausage tacos. i knew there was a reason for this sausage tacos and sausage dumplings i'm really impressed with the food game of this movie i was very hungry after watching it <laughs> you always get your food pouring in uh not going to surprise anyone to hear me say my favorite movie of quarter two is the king of staten island i was very pleasantly surprised you can go back and listen to our review of that we did a full oscar sprint profile breakdown of that uh i think it's judd apatow's best movie quite frankly and uh yeah the davidson for oscar train rolls on because it just hasn't had any kind of stopping to it because nobody's been putting out movies <laughs> so yeah I mean, uh, if snowpiercer doesn't have something to stop it it just keeps going right exactly <laughs> he's a man of destiny right now as pete davidson in terms of the academy awards right. all right mike let's ra- start wrapping up here we'll talk about some q2 stats in terms of the oscars all time yeah, just to remind some people, I calculated these back before quarter one. So I did a couple different categories. First category was the last 10 years. How many movies have been nominated for any Oscar over the last 10 years, having come out in quarter two? And I only calculated 21 of the categories because Best International Film, the three shorts, they really can't be included in this because they come out at, you know, sometimes they come out two years after they're nominated for an Oscar in the United States. So I really can't calculate the release dates there. And shorts don't get release dates in most cases. Right. They can't count. So out of the 21 categories, 53 nominated films came from quarter two. Over the last 10 years, that is 16.4% of nominated films. Again, this is not nominees, nominated films. That mm. That is uh, 9.7% of those 16 of, of those no- no- nominations are in the major categories. Huh. So that is cool to think about the fact that we do have precedent. It's not just one movie or two movies. It is, you know, it's a 16%. And it's important to understand that, too. You're not talking about individual nominations, like you said kind of quickly there. You're talking about films that carried any nominations whatsoever. So out of every 10 films that that 
kind of go around or randomize the big categories one of them are going to be from something we saw this quarter, at least if this was a normal year. Correct. Now, in terms of the Best Picture nominees, I calculated those for all time. So this is out of 92 Best Picture winners, 16 came from quarter two. And we're going to list those real quick and then pick our favorites. So The Hurt Locker. Yeah, that aired actually in 2008 at the Venice Film Festival before winning the Oscar in 2010. So it had already been playing in Italy as well. So it had a little momentum behind it. Momentum, then a wide release in June, which was cool to see. I actually went back. I didn't know if it was released wide or if you were correcting me there. But I I thought I remembered seeing it in June of that year. And I was right. (laughs) Terrible story. Terrible story. Speaking of terrible stories, Crash came out in May. What a transition. Came out in May of 05, 06. That also won the Best Picture Oscar in 06. But it, too, debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival in 04 before going wide in May of 05. Gladiator came out in May of 2000, and I saw it on my birthday, which was a big deal, with my buddy and my dad. I never liked that movie, and it played zero film festivals, and it was released in early May of 2000. I don't understand why you don't. I know. A A lot of people can't figure that out, and I can't either, and I'm sorry, and I think we just have to accept it and move on. I don't love that movie, but I don't not not like that movie. Uh, I, I, you know, it's been years. Maybe I gotta. Maybe we should just do a whole episode where I watch all everything that's good that I dislike, like we that. No country have a for old men. Series of Mike <laughs> dealing with his grudges. Right, exactly. Exactly. See if they still hold up, or if you were an ass and you never had them. My bet's on the latter. Braveheart <laughs> came out in May of 1995. Mike, that did play the Seattle Film Festival, but only six days prior to its wide release of 95. Annie Hall came out in April of 77. That debuted at the L.A. Film Festival in March before its wide U.S. release April 20th of 77. Midnight Cowboy came out in May of 69. That debuted wide on May 25th. The Apartment came out in June of 1960. That's a movie I need to see. That also debuted June 30th, 1960. No film festivals. Gigi, which I haven't seen, that came out of May in 1958. So... Gigi was previewed for audiences in Santa Barbara in 58. Then it underwent extensive reshoots before being previewed again in New York in May of 58. And then it was released wide to the U.S. on April 1st of 59. Figure that out if you want. I really want to make a bad joke about Geely and the one L making the difference between it all. We all all want to make that joke, I think. (laughs) I'm going to move on. Marty came out in April of 1995. That actually won the Palme d'Or at Cannes upon its debut in April of 55 before its wide U.S. release in July of that year. Hamlet came out in May of 1948. Hamlet. It had a wide U.S. debut made fourth before winning the Golden Lion, which at that time was called the Great International Prize of Venice in September of 48. Golden Lion's a better name. Mike, Going My Way came out in May of 1944. Straight release May 3rd. Mrs. Miniver came out in June of 1942. Straight U.S. release on June 4th. Rebecca came out from in April of 1940 from Hitchcock. That debuted in Miami on March 21st before its wide release April 12th. Cavalcade, which I cannot spell for the life of me. It took me <laughs> 10 times going back and forth from Wikipedia to this. It's C-A-V-A-L-C-A-D-E. F-Y-I. So you, you want to spell it like Calvary, I'm guessing? I wanted to put the L somewhere else. Again. Yeah, you want C-A-L-V? I watched a documentary about spelling bees this week. I like letters. 
Okay? You didn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I watched it. I wasn't, I wasn't giving you grief. I like spelling. You get so defensive. April of 1933, Cavalcade came out. Straight release, April 15th of 33. Grand Hotel came out in April 1931, Mike. A wide release, a straight release on April 12th of 31. And finally, All Quiet on the Western Front won Best Picture in 1930, came out in April 1929. Okay, so All Quiet on the Western Front debuted April 21st, 1930, but the third Academy Awards were held nine months after the second Oscars. Mm -hmm. So April 3rd, 1930 was the date of the second Oscars. November 5th, 1930 was the date of the third Oscars. That's where this film won outstanding production, and the event would stay in November until 1934 for the sixth Academy Awards. Okay, Mike, so why in the hell didn't you just let me list those? Why did you do all this extra research on release dates? Because... Uh, here's the point I was making on this. And if there is going to be any Q2 film in the future that is going to ride momentum towards an Oscars win, the two most recent times that we did it, that we had a quarter two film win best picture, mm-hmm. the Hurt Locker and Crash both debuted at film festivals and a major film festival, Hurt Locker in Venice, Crash in Toronto, major film festivals a year prior to their wide US release. So it seems like if you're going to be a Q2 film that's going to carry yourself to a best picture win, you have to have word of mouth and serious momentum from film festivals already. Obviously, there's not going to be really a chance for film film festivals to put themselves behind any one Oscar contending picture this year because of COVID, but in future years, it's going to be something to keep an eye on. If there's something that had already debuted overseas or at one of the major film festivals overseas prior to its wide U.S. release the next year, it's going. if it has serious word of mouth, if it has serious momentum once it did debut and once it does hit stateside already, it could be taken seriously as a Best Picture contender. Now, we just came off Parasite essentially winning Best Picture because it charmed the pants off of mm-hmm. every film festival, right? I wonder if something like Minari, which played at last Sundance and could go to this group of fall film festivals, even though we haven't heard that movie being mentioned again, I'm wondering if something like that could have that long run-up and actually play well at this year's Academy Awards in the diluted year, and that these stats actually say the exact opposite of what you just said, because we're, regardless, we have a long run-up. Right, right? and that's, that's what I was going to follow up with. I don't think... I don't think anything would surprise me. Honest to God, I, I, really? I'm not going to be surprised by whatever happens this Oscars because this is such a literally once in a lifetime type thing. I mean, World War II is really the only, in terms of moving so many major events, that's really the only kind of parallel we have to what we're living through right now as far as the live entertainment calendar being in such Oh, disarray as it is. Uh, I mean, are the Oscars even going to actually go forward the date that we announced them to? That kind of still remains to be seen, even though we all expect them to at this point. So, I, I mean, could Minari run up and run away? Yeah, sure, whatever, I'm in. I, I, I think it's crazy to predict anything that's going to happen this year in 2020 and 2021. Well, this section confused the shit out of me, but <laughs> we should pick our favorite quarter two best picture winner, Mike. I have a short list, including, you know, recency biases like The Hurt Locker and Gladiator, birthday bias in my case Braveheart uh, Rebecca Marty you could probably throw it on there do you have any kind of a short list real quick before we pick our winner well it's not a short list it's a process of elimination because I haven't seen many of these and if I could walk you through my brain as we reach the end of the episode here maybe it'll do someone some good somewhere it won't but anyway here we go uh, didn't see the Hurt Locker yet 
I have it. I own it. It's in plastic. Got to wait for that Bigelow Boogaloo uh, <laughs> series that we're going to do. We're doing it. I swear to God, name. just for that name. The Bigelow Boogaloo. <laughs> Catherine, it's coming. Don't you worry. Uh, can't pick Crash because obviously. Can't pick Gladiator because personal bias. Can't pick Braveheart because obviously. Awful. Can't pick Annie Hall because obviously. <laughs> so I, I, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm not going to pick Miss Minerva, even though I've seen it. I'm Miss stuck Minerva? with Mrs. Minerva. Miniver? Mrs. Minerva. Whatever. Lavette? I've always Love called it. it. I've always Love said it. Minerva. Yeah. Lavette? <laughs> so I'm going to pick Rebecca. And that's just, that's my short list. And it's also one of the only ones that I've seen of this list. It also reminded me, I need to see more quarter two best picture winners, quite frankly. I like Rebecca. I did too. I, I'm kind of excited about the rewatch with uh, Mr. Hammer. That's going to be cool from Netflix. That's that's coming. The remake, not the yeah. rewatch. Army Hammer's also rewatching Rebecca, and he'll be doing that for <laughs> I don't me. Know. I'm very curious as to why that production is going forward, but hopefully we get some answers soon. My pick is from film school because I was studying Billy Wilder with a couple different classes. I don't think I've watched this movie since then, but The Apartment from 1960. I have to watch this. Yeah, Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray, Jack Crucian. Mike, I watched this in the early 2000s. I don't know if it still holds up today, but I remember liking it. And here's what worries me, why I don't know if it holds up today, because this movie is about a man who tries to rise in his company by letting its executives use his apartment for trysts. But, but complications and a romance of his own ensues. So this sounds like the slimiest pre- premise ever, but why do I remember this being a sweet, romantic, dramatic, and funny movie? Because Jack Lemmon's in it, and he's America's grandfather. <laughs> that might be why. And Shirley MacLaine is, is really That's funny That's true, too. too. Right. Uh, the Apartment is remembered finally, though. I, I was doing research on it last night. It's it's part of AFI's Top 100. It's on all these best films of, you know, the 20th century list. And I, I imagine it has to hold up, at least somewhat, because it's still talked about in reverent tones. So... I remember Billy Wilder being really progressive back in the day. Okay. Compared to other filmmakers, so so there's hope. Hopefully, there's hope. <laughs> anyway, this won five Oscars: picture, director, screenplay, art direction, and editing. Ten nominations: Lemon, McLean, Crucian, cinematography, and sound. So, quarter two movies, man, they can go the distance and they can get all the noms like that one did. So, who knows? This might have been the worst quarter two in all <laughs> recorded time, but it's top heavy. The Five Bloods can get looked at. The king of Staten Island can get Golden Globes. They gotta buy a yacht. We'll figure out <laughs> if he can still charm those HFPA members. You never know. Pete Davidson's winning an Oscar. I don't know for what. And I don't know when. But he's winning an Oscar. <laughs> he's also on the screenplay. He's also That's got true. Cre- That's true. Credit. That's true. <laughs> you just made me look not so stupid. <laughs> Guys, as always, we want to hear your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about everything we touched on in this episode specifically. Uh, Did you watch any of the movies that we gave those 13 reviews to earlier? Do you have a favorite Q2 best picture contender or winner uh, that we commented on? What would be your pick and what would be your shortlist of those? And you can leave us those comments, questions, concerns about everything from this episode, as well as anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. Please leave us those. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram. 
Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts. And if you happen to be quarantining with us and please God go back to quarantining if you ever didn't quarantine because it's just a hellscape out there. Even though I am the pessimistic one and the scared one, I don't care. I'll wear it. Uh, but if you are quarantining with us, like I was saying before I went off on that tangent, uh, we cannot thank you enough. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, it would take all of about 10 seconds on the Apple Podcasts app. Michael, what are some words of wisdom to end on here, and what are we doing next here from MMO? It is wise to tune into our uh, buddies podcast, Matt Neglia at Next Best Picture. Those guys are celebrating their 200th episode. Yeah. And- like us, they have many more than 200 episodes, but it is their you know, numbered episodes, and they don't number a bunch. And maybe we copied them, or I don't remember if they copied us. But we, a lot of people don't number all their episodes. They do a lot of work, though, and we're <laughs> yes, really proud to be filmed. Certainly. Yeah, we're proud to be filmed Twitter friends with uh, Matt and company over there, and uh, they've really been supportive of us. So words of wisdom, go listen to Next Best Picture if you don't already. We have... MMOW coming up next. We have the James Bond character study resuming once again with Casino Royale. We're going to take the Daniel Craig films, Bond Bond film by Bond film, after going Bond by Bond up till now, but we're doing that monthly, and we got new movies coming out at the end of the month. Probably not now, though. We just established that at the beginning of this episode. Yeah. So we probably don't need to do Casino Royale next week, but we'll, uh, whatever. We promised it twice already, so we'll just do it. we got to figure out something for July. If, uh... <laughs> if you have any advice, if you have any recommendations, send them along. The apartment for we, we could do that. Arc. We could do a, a, ja- a Billy Wilder rewatch or a Jack Lemon rewatch, uh, culminate in grumpy old men. This might be the time to dive into a rewatch. We've been talking about it for a while, but it might be the time. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on. We will continue putting out content, even if it's not as relevant as we might hope. But. Uh, it's, it's coming, folks. Like the Mike One grudge list is coming. <laughs> Guys, when reality sucks, come watch these movies with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon. See ya.